I'm Vinny. And I'm Drake. And welcome to Backstage Biddies, a podcast where two theater nerds discuss our love, and sometimes hate, of movie musicals. From Golden Age, to Disney, to Contemporary, we'll recap and review all things movie musical. Join us as we scrutinize Hollywood casting, dive into the history of all your faves, and gossip about controversies of the stage and screen. Press play and sing along, because this this is Backstage Biddies. Whole life is so exhausting all the time. Yeah. Oh my god. <coughs> oh my word. Yeah. We're having so much fun. It's. <laughs> your face is like. I'm trying to convince. This my... is fun. <laughs> I'm trying to convince myself. This is fun. We're having a great time. We're having a great time. You're like a mom on vacation. <laughs> We're having a great time. Everyone's enjoying themselves. <laughs> Um, we really are having a great time. It's I just mean, our are. schedules it's, are oh like jam-packed. Bonkers. We've got like, we're, um, aiding in a, in a children's show right now. Um, we are, uh, going to be in a wedding this upcoming weekend. Which, how many weddings is this for you as of like this upcoming one? For this year? Yeah. Is it your fourth? Your fifth? No. No, um, more are coming later. Oh, okay. No, this so is, what is like, this, my like your third one this year. Second or third? It's got to be your third because didn't you do one before Taylor's earlier this year? I I don't know. We're losing count. Oh god. I don't know. Oh god. I don't know. I have six total this year. We just went to a Ren Fair this last weekend for the first time ever, guys. Ren fairs are so cool. It was a lot of fun. It was the big one in Bristol, um, in like Kenosha, Wisconsin. Super fun. Crazy good time um, with some of our best friends, the, with with friends who are getting married this week, with sort of their, like, bachelorette party thing, kind of. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was a whole fairy. It was crazy. We walked around the grounds for nine hours. I've never been complimented so much before in my entire existence. <laughs> well, it was a good dress. It was good. You know what? I'm going to post the fit. You should. No one asked. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Maybe I'll ask for permission and I'll post the one that uh, me and the bride took as well. Yeah. I took a picture with Cthulhu. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. I'm, I mean, it is good. If you, you guys know, ever want to do like a Ren fair, just do it. If you ever have the chance, just try it. It's a very good time. Especially if you're here listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> if you're here willingly listening to this, then the Ren fair is probably your vibe. Even if you are listening to it against your will. <laughs> just try it. And if you don't like it, there's plenty of booze. Yeah, the thing is, it's like a, it's got the same vibe as like a Pride Fest or any other kind of like big festival kind of thing, but with a theme. We love a theme. We do. We just love a theme. I adore a theme. I adore like a, a costume event. Yeah, that we don't have to put on. Oh my God, bless. We didn't have to clean up anything. Although we did have to drive all the way there and drive all the way back. On a Sunday. So it was not without its 
without its preparation and follow-up, but significantly less than if we had had to host it. Oh, way less. Way less. It was tons of fun. Um, So fun! We may or may not have gotten sunburnt literally the Sunday before we're going to be in a wedding. Oh god, yeah. I'm going to be bathing myself in aloe every day between now and wedding photos because I refuse to look like like a pink redhead. Moisturize me! Yeah, oh my gosh. And you're wearing pink. I know! I have to be very. I have to be very careful. I have to look pale, or I'll look like a like a starburst. <gasps> but the pink starbursts are the best. Did you hear that in a California lawsuit, they have declared Skittles unfit for human consumption? <laughs> yeah, bitch. Yeah. I literally have a bag of Skittles in my room. Well, they're going to the garbage. Don't eat them. There. I mean, the thing is, they're probably. I mean- they're not probably a... by California law unfit for human consumption because they've outlawed like a ton of preservatives and artificial flavors, colors, additives. Like that state in particular has different like food regulations. Mm. So by California law, yes, it probably is unfit for human consumption. I should also throw them out because I got them from when we did Joseph. That was <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Literal years. Yeah. You need to toss those immediately. Yeah. I found them in like the back of a drawer and I was like, um. Well, that's trash, mama. What are these doing here? <laughs> that's garbage. Just like me. No. Listen. <laughs> We're not doing that. Give me the hint. <laughs> so the hint this week was Phineas. Phineas and Ferb? Phineas. Did you know? I was going to start singing a song from Phineas and Ferb, but I don't know any of them. Oh, I've got squirrels in my pants! I know that one. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> a fun fact, since you said Phineas and Ferb, is that when I was a child, I evidently super loved duckbill platypuses. Like, obsessively. And mm. I had no recollection until <laughs> I went and saw my third grade teacher one time. Oh, okay. And she was like, do you still like them? And I was like, I don't know what I you're talking about. What? And she's like, Benny, you would, you, every single day you would talk about them. Give me fun facts. And I'm like, I think I time jumped. There's no way. Oh, wow. I was like, I don't know any fact about them. I know that they, um, lay eggs. Do you know they're venomous? Yes. I didn't know that. That's fucking bonkers. So the uh, so the hint was Phineas, <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that it's Phineas is because Phineas starts with a P, and so does the name of the main homie in this musical. P. T. Barnum. That was the most roundabout way for you to land on that name, but we got there. <laughs> Didn't you like that? <laughs> yes. Phineas as in uh, P.T. Barnum, Phineas Taylor Barnum. Sometimes, Drake, you need to just enjoy the show. Oh, shut up. Speaking of show, we're talking about the greatest showman today. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like that? I did it twice. (laughs) (laughs) I have big, ugly feelings about this musical. It's just, there's so many. So many everywhere. A lot of them are negative. Some of them are like glowingly positive. It's such a mixed bag. But they're all really big. Technically, before it was a movie, it wasn't really a musical. This exact thing. But there was a musical. Right. So there is another musical based on P.T. Barnum's life titled Barnum. It is not the same thing as The Greatest Showman. Although it does tackle the same person in the same like historical life. So there's a little bit of overlap. Let's talk about it. 
Barnum is an American musical by Cy Coleman um, from the year 1980. Cy Coleman is the same composer who did Sweet Charity, City of Angels, Will Rogers' Follies. Barnum ran on Broadway for 854 performances. Is that a lot? I mean, it's a fair deal. It's more than a year. Okay. Okay. It's I think probably, that, ma- that well, math is, well, yeah, that math is mathin'. Yeah, it's probably actually closer to two years. Yeah. With like an eight show week. Makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah. So it had a good run. This musical explores Barnum's life in the same way that The Greatest Showman does, including his development of Barnum's American Museum, the sideshow, his wife, Jenny Lind, but it also explores his life after the museum that led him to the circus. So, some things that happen in the musical that don't happen in the movie. After the museum burns down, which did actually happen, he left entertainment and he ran a clockwork factory. He tried to build a town from scratch. Oh. Uh, He also ran for mayor and won. And then eventually he tried to run for senate, but did not. Can you imagine? It's wild. Kooky, kooky stuff. Most of these decisions were at the behest of his wife. Charity really disliked the bamboozlement of his entertainment career. She didn't think it was good. She didn't think it was right. She kept him very grounded. She was kind of his voice of reason throughout most of his entertainment career. And she really encouraged him to step away from it, especially when it got really intense with the loss of the museum. So a lot of this happened because his wife encouraged him to step away Eventually, he did end up back in entertainment and returned to the circus to develop Barnum and Bailey's Traveling Circus. So let's talk about the stuff that happens in the movie and the musical. The musical Barnum is much more transparent and less candy-coated than The Greatest Showman. They do a lot of work in the movie to make him a sympathetic character and to make him an interesting protagonist that we can root for and that we want to side with. Barnum does a lot less of that. Like, the opening number is titled, There's a Sucker Born Every Minute. He's a con man from the opening number. He's never painted as an altruistically good person in the musical, which I think is appropriate, because he didn't always do the right thing. He was definitely out for himself most of the time, and if that helped other people, that was kind of just a windfall and not his goal. He had a sort of Tiger King trajectory, going on with Barnum's American Museum. There are a couple details about the museum that didn't make the movie. The top of the museum featured a lighthouse lamp that would rotate and wash the area in light constantly and attract people from all over town and even from out of town. There was a rooftop garden. From that rooftop garden, there were daily hot air balloon rides. I mean, this place was a, was a real kooky madhouse of, of oddities. So a lot more than what the movie showed, because the movie did not show... No, I mean, the original the original American Museum was a funhouse of attractions. It had all kinds of crazy things. It reminds me of, like, it's like where Tiger King and House on the Rock and SeaWorld kind of just, like, intersect. Right it's on. a slice of all of those. And you end up with Barnum's American Museum... There were attractions and sideshow pieces that didn't make the movie as well, um, including the Fiji Mermaid, who was actually donated, or I guess purchased, from Barnum's friend Moses Kimball, who was also a sort of sideshow con man kind of thing. 
It was absolutely a hoax. It was completely faked, but it did travel, and not just through this museum, but through several other sideshow and traveling acts. It was half monkey, half fish, and, like, completely fake. But Barnum believed in hoaxes as long as people got value for their money as far as, like, entertainment goes, and as long as it didn't hurt anybody. We'll circle back to that because Barnum does hurt people. I just don't think he's aware of it. But we'll come back to it. Fun fact, Barnum the Musical has been recorded. It's on film. What? Yeah, there's a movie. It's a pro shot, but it was recorded. This is news. Yeah, I, I, news. Was, I was reading about it and um, there was a recording made of the London production. And I got really excited because I was like, oh my god, there's a film. Because it just said filmed production of Barnum. Right. And I was like, oh, 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 we could cover Barnum too. That'd be really cool. And then I found out it was a pro shot. And we don't do pro shots. But maybe, like, just for funsies, we should watch it sometime. More things that happened in real life. The American Museum did actually burn down. It actually burned down twice. There was a fire attempted in 1864, which damaged the building, but did not destroy the building and close the museum. There was a second fire set in 1865, and these were from people who who thought that the museum was a bad thing. The fire in 1865 did destroy the building, and despite what they say in the movie where all of the animals live or have escaped, all the animals died. Any animals that made it out of the building were shot on sight. Most animals did not make it out of the building, including two beluga whales that were kept on site in tanks and were they were, they were boiled alive. Oh my lord. Yeah. So there were lots of attractions that they don't cover in the movie, mostly because they're wildly unethical, like keeping beluga whales in tanks inside a museum. That's not healthy or good for them. No, beluga whales are huge. Right. That's the SeaWorld slice. Ah, there we go. There we go. There were whales, a whole collection of whales, and two of them kept at the museum did indeed die in that fire. So after the fire... Uh, There was a a new building opened called Barnum's New Museum. It opened later that year in 1865. The sideshow acts were included, but again, Barnum stepped away to pursue politics. He was known as the Prince of Humbug. He said humbug instead of hoax because it had a different connotation and he could get away with spinning it in a commercial way. He called himself the Prince of Humbug. He didn't believe in fraud, but he did think that hoaxes were acceptable as long as no one got hurt. Unless, of course, you were an animal or an exotic person or albino or a little person or a child. He actually had a reputation for organizing pageants and contests, including baby contests. He would do things like uh, like fattest baby contests or most handsome twins contests. He essentially invented toddlers and tiaras and didn't see a problem with it. Mm. Because people were commodities to him. But as long as no one was physically harmed, he didn't see any harm in it. But of course, the repercussions of marketing exotic people, read as black and brown people, as an act to be just gawked at and to be entertainment simply because of the color of your skin, which was 100% what those acts were. And they were, you know, camouflaged as snake charmers or dancers or, or whatever it may be. But the commodity of seeing them was that they were doing their act and were black. Particularly exotic women were one of his favorite acts, and that's unethical and racist and not good. 
The same goes for albino acts, the the terrible living conditions he put animals through, and he that's sort of one of the more infamous points is the animal cruelty that he he committed. All of that to say that I don't think he intentionally did harm to anybody. I think he saw people who were outcasts in communities and said, I can commodify your suffering. To your benefit, it's not going to help anybody else who looks like you or even help you permanently, but I can take the situation you're in and make it work for you. And that is a double-sided coin and a double-edged sword, much like he was his entire life. Unless, of course, you're watching The Greatest Showman, in which case he was a candy apple sweetheart who had dreams and hope. Speaking of the movie, 2017 is when this bad boy came out, December 8th. It was directed by Michael Gracie, screenplay by Jenny Bix and Bill Condon, cinematography by Seamus McCarvey. One more time. Seamus McCarvey. Wowza. Did you like that? I did. I'm getting better with the accents. (laughs) I'm not saying it's good, but you know. Better is better. Right? We'll take it. Music by John Denebi, Joseph Trep... Trapezoid. Trapezius. Trampoline. Trapanzies? You were doing so well. Joseph Tres... Fuck. <laughs> Joseph Trapanzies. And then, of course, Pasek and Paul. Yes. As well. The cast. And I would venture to say a, a skosh bit of a star-studded cast. I think there was definitely some stellar casting here. Oh, yeah. We've got Hugh Jackman as P.T. Barnum himself. Zac Efron as Philip Carlyle, who is a playwright that becomes Barnum's partner. Michelle Williams as Charity, Barnum's wife. We've got Rebecca Ferguson as Jenny Lind, who's the Swedish singer. Zendaya. Ugh. Bless. I love her so much. As Ann Wheeler. Keila Settle. As Letty Lutz, which is the bearded lady. Uh, Sam Humphrey as Charles Strutton, who is the, this says the dwarf performer. I don't believe that that is the correct term. Oh, the Tom Thumb character? Yes. 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 Yah Abdul Mateen II as W.D. Wheeler. So Zendaya's brother. The other half of the Trabies Act. Yep. And then Eric Anderson as Mr. O'Malley, which is the former pickpocket that Barnum employs at the circus. I love that those are all the named characters, even though, like, There's not all of them. Tons. Right, the balance is, is not equal throughout all of that. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why those are the named characters, but. Much like Barnum. Whatever. Yeah. So actually, this production took seven years to produce. I absolutely believe that. Because rehearsal started in October of 2000. So re- rehearsal started in October of 2016, but like they had been working on writing it. They had run it past Hugh Jackman like early. Well, that's kind of a Pasek and Paul move that they always have a couple couple pokers in the fire and they'll just share ideas whenever they're with groups of people that they think can help them with that project. It's the same thing with Dear Evan Hansen. They worked on Dear Evan Hansen for a long time before it ever got on the ground. They had been working with Ben Platt, and he was literally a part of that project, like, from its conception. They do that a lot. Pasek and Paul, they, they're playing the long game. Yeah, because Hugh Jackman literally was one of the people that helped 
get this thing going. Yeah. Because, of course, like anything, if you have a name attached to a project, it's a lot easier to get off the ground than anything else. Well, and the two of them, I think, know how to write for a star vehicle. Definitely. I think it's one of their one of their strong suits that they find an artist that they want to work with and they understand what their voice is capable of, what their character is capable of, and what they can manage as a performer, and then they write to that strength. And they lean in. Yeah. Because it's, it's interesting to me that it took, like, seven whole years to produce, but it was released in December of, like, early December of 2017 and started filming in October of 16. That, yeah. to me, is a fairly quick turnaround, considering. Well, and... We'll talk more about this when we get there, but I think Pasek and Paul are some of the most clever composers that we have right now because they are producing musical theater for a new a new stage and a new medium. They don't write things exclusively for the stage. They write things with multimedia in mind. So they do the legwork and they know that if you get the bulk of the project done, all you have to do is find the star to like plug in. Right. And then it and then the whole process goes really quickly because they've done all the other really difficult, arduous, time consuming things. Yeah. That all that's already happened and you can just plug and chug then. Right. Which makes for a very quick turnaround and understanding like the the attention span of social media right now or at you know, at this time to understand how quickly you have to like drum up enthusiasm, deliver on that enthusiasm and then like market and like steamroll as much money out of that enthusiasm as you can after it's been released. Like they understand the timeline and I think they, I can, I can totally understand why it took so long to do because I think they do things in a smart, smart way. Yeah. And there was also that speaking of like drumming up stuff on social media and things like that, there was that famous video. Oh, the um, rehearsal video where they pitched the movie. Yep. Yeah. Keela actually wasn't going to sing. They had to talk her into coming and just, they're like, hey, will you come just sing this for us? She wasn't auditioning. She didn't want the part necessarily. They just needed a powerhouse singer to come in and and demo the song. Yeah. She finally was able, that moment when she, and people talk about this all the time that were in the room or people who have watched the video, that once she moves the music stand from in front of her and she steps out into the center and she just really takes hold, they were like, you have the part. Sometimes the I know spirit... you weren't auditioning, but like. <laughs> Sometimes the spirit moves you and takes a hold of you and pulls you to the center of a room. And baby, that's an audition. Hello. That's what it is. Jeremy Jordan actually was one of the people for uh, early demos of stuff too. Yes, he was. Boo. Now, listen. Zac Efron was not right for this movie. And there were better people for the role. But Zac Efron got screwed out of High School Musical 1. And I think he could have done it. I think he was prepared and willing and talented enough. And he lost that opportunity. So I give him grace. So he got this one. Yeah. So I don't. no one's allowed to shake a stick at Zac Efron. He's really, really hot. And he took some blows early in his career as a young teen pop star. So we're going to give him this. The reception was... <laughs> absolutely wild so stellar a movement tr- i truly from people who were teaching show choir at the time that this movie came out holy god the music to this movie was everywhere on the radio on the radio which said i mean it says something well and it really comes into play when you see 
the fact that their budget was $84 million. <gasps> okay, but they made worldwide a total of $434.9 million. I mean, yeah. That, I mean, that's like unheard of specifically for movie musicals. And it actually is the third highest grossing musical ever in North America and the third highest globally. That's insanity. There are certain critics that were not jazzy on it. And I know we've said this before, but like what the critics say isn't always what the average person thinks. And truly what the average person thinks is what's most important. Right. Because average people pay to see the movie and critics don't. Right, like, you can have one critic shit-talk your show, but if you have a thousand-plus people who really liked it and bought a ticket, that one person that just has, a like, a microphone you don't doesn't exist. matter. You, it doesn't make, it like, a difference. <laughs> yeah. Because um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 57%. A what? A 57%, which is kind of shocking. Um, the reviews... Well... I can maybe understand. I don't know if 57 feels low, but I can understand. The positive, like, it's it's mostly positive. The average rating is 6 out of 10. Okay. Um, and I it, agree. And kind of the general consensus is The Greatest Showman has tried hard to dazzle the audience with a Barnum-style sense of wonder, but the expense of its complex subjects are far more intriguing real-life story. Like, if they would have leaned into some of that stuff that we're definitely going to be talking about later, it would have meant more. Then there's also Alan Jones from Radio Times called it a joyously uplifting potpourri of visual resplendence, stylish choreography, and solid gold magic. One engineered to approximate the lavish spectacle the movie musical once offered. I don't disagree. Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle gave it a negative review saying there's idiotic and then there's magnificent, but The Greatest Showman is that special thing that happens sometimes. It's magnificently idiotic. It's an awful mess, but it's flashy. <laughs> the temptation to cover your face and watch it through your fingers because it's so earnest and embarrassing and misguided, yet it's well made. So... Things The Greatest Showman does well. The choreography, Ugh. absolute insanity. Every group number is is through the roof. The visuals, the imagery, every nook and cranny, all of it. It's so, it's compelling storytelling. It's colorful. It's balanced. It's really well done. It's very, very thoughtful. The music, catchy, brilliant. Everybody's favorite. They released a cast album before they released the movie, so everyone knew the songs going in. Very, very smart. I mean, it, it's it's such a good musical. The thing they do poorly is the book. And Justin Chang of Los Angeles Times wrote that the film's failures are rooted in something deeper, a dispiriting lack of faith in the audience's intelligence and a dawning awareness of its own aesthetic hypocrisy. You've rarely seen a more straight-laced musical about the joys of letting your freak flag fly. And uh, Rhoda Roberts, who's the art director of the Sydney Opera House, criticized the film very heavily and outwardly to the point where, like, I saw it. It was about the fact that the film did not address Barnum coercing and kidnapping Native peoples to perform in human zoos as a form of entertainment. I mean, that's the thing. 
is again, the book is weak because we took a person who is inherently not sympathetic or likable, who cruised through his whole life strong-arming capitalism to his benefit and manipulating people around him to get it done, and we tried to make him like a Disney leading man. And it's just not that. It's the problem with all Pasek and Paul musicals. It's the Pasek and Paul problem. The PPP. The PPP. These two dudes write the most insanely catchy, interesting, stunning music. Some of their choral structure is absolutely breathtaking. These two do a ballad like nobody's business. But when they sit down to put together a whole show, the book flounders. Happened with Dogfight, happened with Dear Evan Hansen, happened here. And we're going to talk later about how this musical achieved such wild, rabid success, despite the fact that they still have the Pask and Paul problem. For the awards, they were nominated out the ass, and they won a ton of stuff. In every category ever for everything. Just like a, a few of, of the things that I saw, they won Billboard Music Awards Top Soundtrack. And of course they did. Everybody had this soundtrack. Right. And then you have Golden Globes. They won the best original song for This Is Me. Not shocking. Uh, best pick nomination, Grammy. They won the best compilation soundtrack. And the thing that I don't know that I had seen before and since this movie hadn't seen until Hamilton, you have act- like pop artists coming together and recreating the album with their own spins on it. Everybody wanted a slice of this musical. And this, with that quote-unquote like celebrity track, that celebrity album, you had people from every every genre yeah. of music. You had people from all over. Pink, so, Zach Brown band, like you had everybody. Exactly. And, which by the way, Zach Brown band's from now on breathtaking oh oh boy howdy does it get me yeah me too oh whoa uh, uh, oh let's dive into some plot biddies <laughs> <laughs> oh whoa oh oh do you like it whoa, 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 whoa. that's not that's not it at all Oh, 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 that's what you were doing. Yeah. But without the melody so we don't get copyright strikes. Yeah. It's going to happen to us. I mean. We're going to start monetizing these things and like immediately just be like drowning in cease and desists. Because also <laughs> this is how the movie starts. It is. We kick right off into a song. Oh my God. Yeah. Like we didn't even, we don't even get through like the, like the production company. No. Bits. No. Immediately. Fuck your production company. We're no here cares. for a musical. Yeah. We are in a movie, baby. In a movie. No hesitation. None. We have the greatest show right off the top. I remember the first time I watched this, I was like, wow, we're like right in the circus. I wonder if like at some point they're going to like dial it back. Like, cause you see all sorts of animals and all sorts of things and like faceless crowd cheering. And yeah, I mean, and we're in it. Stuff. We're in the thick of it. We're dropped right into the middle of it. Yeah. And there's like, like those, the horses with the carriage thing. All of the CGI is so bad. It's so bad <laughs> throughout the whole movie. And I just. But I think it serves a, perf- a purpose. And I'll tell you when I realized in my notes. 
where it has a purpose. You tease. But it is really awful. Yeah. It, a lot it of it looks great. really bad. And then he, like, starts to slow down in, like, the middle of the song. Oh, we get, we get like, a whole slew of characters. And every, oh, yeah. right off the bat, everybody's character design is so sick. Visually stunning, this movie. It's... Except the CGI, which we'll talk about (laughs) later. But but he kind of like winds down and looks around and it does this like dream transition thing. Yeah. Into young P.T. Barnum. Splitting the songs in the movie, but not on the soundtrack. Brilliant. It's such a clever contemporary thought because I don't think Pasek and Paul are writing musical theater exclusively for Broadway. Again, they're writing musical theater songs for a new age, for a new medium across across worlds. This is meant to transcend Broadway and Hollywood. This is something new. This is something for both. It's it's some kind of new, inventive middle ground. And I think we're going to see more of it in the industry as we continue to grow. But I think that this is like a really brilliant indicator of people who are writing new live things in a new creative way. I just think it's really clever. So transitions to young PT, we see him standing outside of a shop kind of like, and because of the imagery, it looks like what the mannequin is wearing is on his body. He's dreaming of a better life is what happens. He's like, Oh, this would be great. You know, cause we find out that his dad is a tailor. They travel to this home so that way his dad can make suits and things for this really rich guy. Turns out it's Charity's dad. We see young Charity sitting at the table learning like an etiquette lesson from some gal on staff. And PT makes her laugh and she ends up like spitting out her tea. And the dad walks over to him and fully bitch slaps this child. I hate Charity's dad with a fire that consumes me. Yeah. I hate this man. And of course his dad couldn't do anything for fear of losing this job, which I'm sure they were in desperate need of this money to be able to like eat. Well, they absolutely were because we find out later when P.T. Barnum loses his dad that he has to like steal bread to stay alive. Yeah. So yeah, they are on like the thinnest of ice. He can't retaliate. Right. And just like how terrible that is. Devastating. Yeah. The kids run off and they end up going to the beach and they start talking um, about the fact that Charity's going to have to go to a finishing school and go away. And PT starts talking to her about what he wants out of life. And he takes her to this beautiful grand house that's really run down and abandoned. But you can still see lots of glimmer of glamour and beauty and sophistication. And he goes through and he is singing the song A Million Dreams. And they have some really thoughtful imagery in here with like the broken carousel that casts like shadows on the wall and like... All of the imagery in this movie is very, very thoughtful. That fun spinning light thing. Right. I mean, it's all indicative of what's about to happen, what has happened. We're getting a lot of information in a very short amount of time via these breathtaking visuals. Because during this song, that's not the only place where this song takes place. 
This song takes us all the way through her going off to school and him running after her and being upset. Right. Them writing letters back and forth to each other. His dad passing away. Him trying to steal bread and, again, being beaten by an adult. Right. Um, and then there was a lady that has some sort of facial deformity that gives him an apple. As like a here, you're again. We're doing you know, a foreshadowing thing where like freaks and outcasts helped him when he was in need. So in turn, he's going to grow up and help them. It's a whole thing. Exactly. In this number is where we get to see the first couple glimpses of like the bad CGI. Probably actually serves a function to create a sort of magical surrealism. It takes the edge of reality off of storytelling. It allows us to suspend our disbelief, something we use in musical theater. It's a bit of cushion and padding. Right. It's a really clever, effective way and, and obviously intentional because so much of the imagery of this movie is spectacularly done that you have to know that the CGI was intentional. Yeah. All of the other effects, effects are so masterfully done. And I just want to say before we get to the end of this song... That I do really hate Charity's father, but I also really hate deep, pensive children. <laughs> There's just not one thing. The the sort of like when they're sitting on the sand in the beach and like the sun is going down and they're whispering about their dreams and ugh, gag me. You know that we were those children. Right? I hate poetic children. <laughs> you would have really not liked us. No, if if, if we now met like 14 year old us, I would I would hit me. You're right. I would not enjoy my own company. <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't. So PT ends up joining the railroad as a way of maybe not being beaten and starving to death. He ends up coming back as like a fully grown adult. And this is when Hugh Jackman comes back into the film. It's Hugh. It's Hugh. Yes, I know it's me. No, not you. It's Hugh. Yes. Call back from Teen Beach Movie. Anyway, <laughs> he comes back for Charity's hand and she is super jacked. And the dad is like, she'll be back. An what a absolute nasty, psycho. nasty, nasty parent. Yeah. But Michelle Williams is a vision. Oh, stunning. Oh, she's so pretty. Every moment. Oh, I just love her. Keep in mind, guys, the song is still happening. Yeah. We haven't hit. I'll tell you when we hit the end. We're not there yet. Right. This is like this is what point. the second song in the musical. Yeah, we've we've traveled it's a, maybe it's like actually like the first full song because oh right because we've only gotten so we're one and a half songs in yeah because <laughs> yeah. the first song is split in half exactly so we see Charity and Barnum getting their first apartment and he's like. He is looking at all of the problems and she is looking at the fact that this is like a really great place because she's with him and she's more free probably than she's ever been. It seems to me that the one thing that they didn't completely fry and change to fit into this musical was charity. From the historical account to the musical Barnum to The Greatest Showman, Charity seems really consistent that she was a very level-headed, straightforward, grounded, genuine person. And truly, it sh it shows throughout the whole film. It and, really does. And there's a lesson. She's the only voice of reason for like the next hour and 45 minutes. There's a part where we get to see the lesson that she learned as a kid that Barnum didn't learn until adulthood. And I'll, right. I'll talk about that later. 
we get this dancing scene on the roof. I think it's kind of beautiful. Drake I, absolutely hates it. I do hate the rooftop dance. I don't hate the dancing. I just hate like everything else around it that happens. See, and I don't, I didn't even look at anything around it. So maybe that's I, why I liked it. <laughs> I don't like the rooftop setting. It feels to me narratively like Michelle Williams was cast and she is a phenomenal dancer. And it feels like someone looked at the score and was like, we have to find somewhere for Michelle Williams to dance. And then they just like chucked this in there. It doesn't feel narratively effective. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like an organic movement through the plot. It feels, it feels like someone dropped a dance sequence in the middle of the number because Michelle wanted to dance. And that's, sorry, that's putting it on her. That, of course, was not her decision. And she I dances. wanted Michelle to dance. And you should, because she, she looks so pretty when she dances. <laughs> she dances really, really well, and it's all very good. I just, the sequence bothers me. Guys, we're inching, we're inching to the last bit of the song. So they wrap up the dance, and poof, she's pregnant. That transition to her pregnancy, though, was really smooth. It was very smooth. There's a lot of really great transitions we do clip through plot really, really quickly a lot of the time. Yeah. And the the way that they the way that they move through the narrative is very seamless and smooth. It's very satisfying. Definitely. Because this that's something where when they're firing through so many plot points, they could have really screwed up. Looking at you, happiest millionaire. Yeah. All of a sudden like <laughs> poof, we're in another timeline and we have no idea what's going on. And they but use, they do it really effectively here. Yeah, and especially besides the visual transition, they use the music to be able to transition into the next thing as well. And it's just... It's, it's very just, clever. It's just brilliant. There's one at the very end that is just like, oof. And again, credit goes to Pask and Paul because I think that they're writing musical theater for a new medium. We see Barnum at his job and he has he's going up to his boss because he has some idea. He's decided, I'm going to go talk to my boss about said idea. And turns out everyone is getting let go because all of these ships got sunk. Right. They were like cargo ships carrying their company's money, essentially, like whatever they were using to make money, or maybe they had their actual gold on it. I don't know. Well, and the the ships themselves were how they were making money. Oh, like the ships were the investment? The ships were the that investment. That makes more sense. Which is why Barnum steals the papers. They work so hard to spin his character into something sympathetic in this. I just don't see it at any point. They try to spin it so hard, but the truth of the matter is that P.T. Barnum was an unhappy liar. And he used the people around him to his benefit constantly. And sometimes that also benefited them. But like the baseline, the, the most important thing to take away from that is that he was an unhappy liar. Yeah. And they spin it to try and make him look like an unhappy dreamer who just wants like the world to be better. He's unhappy because the world isn't good enough for him. But even when he has money and influence, it's he doesn't use because it. Because he's an unhappy liar. I hate the unhappy dreamer trope. And this comes from people who like who make believe for a living. Like we are dreamers by definition and by nature. I hate the unhappy dreamer trope. I'm a Pisces. I'm a dreamer. Oh my God. I'm a Scorpio. I'm unhappy. Well. <laughs> I just, the, to be a proper artist and to make good things and to have the ramifications of those things be good, you have to know that like the world around you is enough and then want more for it. 
You can't be unhappy with the world and try to fix it. The world is good enough as it is. People are good enough as they are. And then you want more for them. That's how you have to do it. I hate that trope. You know what else you hate? Children. Oh! So. <laughs> I, ooh! <laughs> so he gets let go of his job. He comes home and we see Charity playing with their two kids. So she was pregnant last we saw. And since then, she's got two children. The most adorable little girls in the whole wide world. I mean, truly precious. It's one of the kiddos' birthdays and Barnum makes up that same kind of spinning light. Yeah, it's like a tin can with holes in it. Yeah, that he spins on a on top of a candle and it creates like a fun disco light. Right, it creates like stars. I mean, it's really cool. It is very pretty. And well, it's I like, like one. it's a fun craft. I I used to do this at home cuz we was we was poor. Yeah. So like we've done this where like you light a candle and then you take a can and you like you suspend it over it with holes in it and you can like make shapes, or you can make constellations and like you can spin it or you can just hold it and like look at the stars like in your living room. It's cool, especially if you're on a budget. Yeah. And he makes this for his kid, but he calls it a wishing machine. So he asks each of his daughters, what would you want to wish for? And so the youngest was like, I wish to marry Santa. Now that girl is going places. Absolutely. Right to the top. And the reason that I say this is because she's like, listen, I want security. (laughs) I want gifts. I want... Christmas, year round. That checks every box I have. And then Little Miss Sass Pants was like, I want ballet slippers and looked her parents dead in the face. Did you see that? Yeah. Well, one of them has maybe come to terms with the, uh, with their poverty and the other one hasn't yet, or maybe has in a different way, in a softer way. Yeah. But older sis is definitely in a place where, like... She's like... Or maybe, like, the older sister, because she was, like, an only child for a bit, had had more. And then when they had two kids, had to cut back, so she knows that there's, like, more to life than what they have now. And I don't know. There's definitely a difference in perspectives there, but the, the older sister definitely, like... Could also be something she's learning in school. Could, you know, like... Could be anything, but yeah, the older sister things. definitely has a different perspective. And she just, like, looks her parents dead in the eyes, and it's this... It's this... Yeah... I want ballet slippers. I want something real and tangible that you can buy me. Because you called this a wishing machine, (laughs) Dad. I'm wishing. Hop to it, sir. It's literally the most venomous I think I've ever seen a child be. (laughs) Then we get A Million Dreams reprise. Is this the one the kids sing? This is the one the kids sing. I hate listening to kids sing. I, it's not my favorite, and it's funny because of how much children's theater we've done. I know, exclusively children's theater. I don't know why we're like this. I, yeah. <gasps> did you hear that they're making Matilda into a, into a movie musical? No, and neither did you. I think we should give it a shot. Okay, fine. Tweet at us if you guys think we should we should give it a shot. I think it's coming up this good, fall. Bad, good, bad, or ugly. I think it's coming up this fall on Netflix. And like, if this, if we like gain enough ground and people get interested in this, I would totally be willing to do like a, like a live watch reaction. Could totally be good Patreon fodder. If you guys are interested or want to see that or make that happen, we got to get more people on the pod because our last episode had 18 listens as of this recording. <laughs> so like, tell your friends, tell your mothers, 
get them on the pod. I would love to do a live reaction to like a new movie musical. Wouldn't that be crazy? That would be crazy. I had that thought just now. You guys are a part of the organic process. Aww. How exciting. I would love to do that. That'd be so Precious. crazy. So Barnum goes to the bank and he's like, yeah, I would like shitloads of money. I don't own anything technically. But I do have this piece of paper. And you see like all of these old fuddy-duddy men holding newspapers and griping. And on the front page of the newspaper, it says that they're in a financial crisis. So he's like, I want to go to the bank during a financial crisis and be like, hey, give me money for fun. You're a liar, Phineas. He needed a furb. Yeah, he did. PT is like, yeah, listen, I have all of these ships. Here's the paper to prove it. The guy's like, well, I Great. mean, these are actual papers, so have I have $10,000. So. Then he purchases Barnum's Museum of Curiosity, and he takes his family there, shows them around. He is so proud and so excited. This is when we meet our pickpocket friend, and he ends up working the ticket booth. Yeah, he becomes kind of a fixture in the museum, which is weird to me, but... Again, weirder things have happened. Barnum uses the people around him to his benefit. So fun fact, the museum was actually like a science museum before Barnum bought it, like in real life, which is why in the movie you see all this, all the junk inside the museum is like not interesting junk. No. Because they were like science exhibits. No. And his kids, he ends up when they're not selling like any tickets at all. His kids are like, dad, it's because you need something alive. You need something alive that people can come and see and view. They weren't wrong. So no. what he did was when he was at the bank, he saw this person that was much shorter than anyone he's seen in his entire life. Yes. And he goes to, he like figures out where this guy and his mom live. He tracks down like a birth certificate from a hospital. Yeah. Like a psychopath. And so he's looking for Charles Stratton and the mom's like, I don't have a son. And he's like, yes, you do. Here's this birth certificate that proves it. And she's like, oh, right this way. <laughs> I was like, what? I would have been pissed. and been like, how did you come across this government document? I'm surprised at how cool she was about it. I would have threatened him. Because he just, he shows up with this document that you don't know how he got a hold of it. And he's like, demanding to see your your son. Girl, get off my porch or you will meet the, the mean end of a frying pan. Ugh. Get out of here. Listen, I'll go Rapunzel on your ass. <laughs> so he comes in and he starts talking to Charles and Charles is like, no, I don't want to do that. People are going to laugh at me. You just want to laugh at me. And you just want to laugh at me and I'm just done with this. I'm exhausted. And he's like, well, kid, they're all laughing anyways. You might as well make money. Which is his entire philosophy. I mean, that's his personality. He's, I just... At no point is P.T. Barnum interested in making the world a better place. He's interested in commodifying the world he's been given. Exactly. And what he does with that, too, is he kind of bolsters Charles into being like, Well, I, I, see, a, I see a general atop a mighty steed in dress uniform and... And no one's going to laugh at him because he's a general. That's not really how that works, but... That's not okay. how it works, um, because you know exactly why people would be coming to see him. But 
whatever. He decides to take the job. Then we see him starting to interview a whole bunch of people. And this is where you start to see, like, the hoax aspect of stuff. Because, like, with the with the really fat man, he's right. like, well, how much do you, how much do you weigh? And he's like... 500 pounds. 750 pounds! 750 it is! <laughs> and the same thing with, like, he puts the, uh, the Irish giant on stilts. The Irish giant is not Irish. He's no, got, like, a Polish like, name. He's like, no, I think you're Irish, and I also think you he need to He puts him be, on stilts. Which this guy is already really tall. Right, like, like clean this, over, like, probably seven feet tall. Because this guy possibly has, like, um... Is a it, glandular disorder, like, most certainly. giantism? Yeah. I think is, is the name. It's like a pituitary gland disorder. Yeah, yeah, um, where they just keep growing. And he puts him on stilts. For what? Yeah. And Christ. then we find out... Because he hears this person singing and he's like, (gasps) and like goes into this laundry and people are like, no, you can't be here. And then this is where we meet Letty. Keela settled supremacy. Okay. We stand her. I mean, she's phenomenal. I just, I'm convinced that she can, she can solve the world's problems with her voice. I would follow her anywhere and do anything for her. She stands right up next to Ariana DeBose. You ever seen Hands on a Hard Body? No. She's in that too and her she just oh, she just wrecks that whole cast recording. It's insane. Well, bless. Yeah. He sees her in the laundry and she's like, "Oh my god, look away, don't, you know, whatever." And he's like, "No, no, no, you're magnificent." And she's really she takes everything he says initially as an insult. Like, he's like, "You're incredible. There people are going to love you." And she's like, "Please, sir, just leave me alone." Like, you can tell she she has found this quiet corner doing laundry by herself so that no one will fucking harass her and she can still sing and she can still you know do those things that she enjoys but she just doesn't want to deal with people and you can tell that the workers there in some some of them in some capacity do care about her yeah i was just gonna say like shout out to these laundry women they're like like, you're not supposed to be in here go away don't look at her don't right who have kept her and protected her and kept her safe like shout out to these laundry women we stand women who protect women. So then we've got this show going. He's super jazzy on it. And we get come alive. We get to see everybody in their full garb. The vocals are electric. The freaking choreo. Oh my God. This number goes so hard. It's, it's one of the only numbers from this movie that I was like, I can't wait to see a show choir do this song. Exactly. Because you have people like the characters in the act, they get pushed out accidentally and people see them and are like gawking and, and like shocked and awe. And, but you see like this little kid peek around his mom's hip and is like, then like starts waving at them and it's one of those things, again, that always reminds me that kids are cool with damn near anything when right. it comes to, like, if, like, people with fun colored hair, tattoos, piercings, um, people who don't look like them, whatever that may be for the individual child. Hatred is taught. That, again, is one of those moments of this kid is, like, super cool with them. And we it's rely, the adults that are the problem. We rely really heavily this entire movie on the innocence of children. 
the whole thing. And it's a lot of it's Barnum's children. A it's lot not, of it's Barnum's children. It's because not we, just Barnum's children, but it's, it's, no, I mean, but like, it's use, like a 90, 10. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We use their perspective and their innocence to like sanitize his actions a lot. During this whole thing, we just, oh my God, the, the costumes, the choreography. It's so flashy. And it's so, the it's. vocals. It's so complex and interesting because every single character, while they're a part of this ensemble, and it is an ensemble, and they are absolutely like pounding the ground with this choreo, they're also each an individual act. So they each have signature poses. They move through the choreography differently. Some of them have three legs. Some of them, there's a pair of Siamese twins. Like it's all unison movement and presented in a unified way, but there's still a myriad of individuals in it, and that's what makes it so incredibly interesting to look at it's just enchanting it's it's truly phenomenal then we get to see that there's a critic in the audience fuck that guy and well a little bit but also eh. i mean fuck that guy for the sake of the story but finish your thought and then i'll i'll tell you why <laughs> so and the well the thing with this too is is that the criticism comes out he's like this is a circus this is a joke this is awful and Barnum's like, a circus. I like that word. And literally changes the name of his business. Which is not what happened. No, not actually. But like, that, Barnum, that's kind of like a fun spin. Right. Barnum didn't do the circus stuff until much later in his life when he met uh, Bailey. This state a freak show. This state a museum. It was never called a circus. Exactly. So the critic is painted as an altruistically evil person, right? He's darkly clothed. He's very cynical. He stands against Barnum, which historically most people with any sense of morality did. But we paint the critic in a very dark light here because, and same with like the angry townies that we meet at one point where like they're all, you know, they're foaming at the mouth and ugly and they look uneducated and, and filthy and they have torches in their hands and they're picketing at the, at the gate to, to get rid of these freaks or whatever. We have these sort of villainous foils against P.T. Barnum because we have to have altruistically, melodramatically evil villains to paint against him, to paint against him. Otherwise, we struggle with finding goodness and morality and something to root for in P.T. Barnum. So, like, yes, these things happened. There were critics. There were people who picketed at the at the museum. But they're not presented in this movie the same way they necessarily existed historically, but they have to be painted that way because we have to root for P.T. Barnum. I mean, they're, I mean, the spin here is really, really hard. They're trying real hard to make us like him. It shouldn't be that difficult. From here, we see, like, the build up because of these folks. Like, he's literally building so much wealth off of... Well, all press is good press. He ends up purchasing the home that... The, like, decrepit home we saw in Right, but it's, like, already, dreams. like, cleaned up and made Refinished, beautiful. polished marble. They took out... There was, like, a full, like, rainforest prairie thing growing inside of it. And I guess... And now it's clean. That's gone. They pull up in a horse-drawn carriage, and the horses are painted like zebras. Unethical. Stop painting animals. Just Also, for silly. who? It was, like... This house isn't, like, on a main road or anything. Like, you painted these horses specifically to pull you to your house. 
And maybe Come those on. were, I mean, maybe like with him driving through town with that, it was another spectacle. It was another thing to look at. It was another maybe. calling card thing. So the kids get gifts. The one that is important is the ballet shoes. Oh my God. She puts those ballet shoes on and just hops right on. My note literally says, girl, you will break your ankle. She just tries to pop right up onto the block in that point shoe. And like point dancing requires so much like preparation training. Like you have to train for years in ballet before you can even attempt point. Because you will snap your ankle. And and it's not just about the bone, it's the tendon. And that shit will not fix itself, will not come no. back, and you can't ever do that again. Baby girl, you'll never walk again. And there's Get a off lot that of... point shoe right fucking now. Exactly. But there is this beautiful... Obviously, the actress herself knows how to point it. Right. Cause She's cause a little girl who has point training because to stop. put... To put any old child actor, just to throw them in a pair of point shoes and be like, could you just pop up on those? Listen. Could you just roll your toes onto a block of wood and just do a quick little number for us? This isn't like back in Shirley Temple, Judy Garland days. No, no one was giving any blue bippies. No. These are children who have actual dance training. God bless. And there's this beautiful transition where she's like fumbling, you know, whatever. But then she gets up on the block and she starts spinning. And during the spin, like her dress changes. And then all of a sudden and we're the in a theater. And the room into the theater. Yes. It's very, very pretty. Wonderfully And again, beautiful moving transition. very quickly narratively. Exactly. But very effectively. Exactly. And then at the end of this, you know, he's so excited for his daughter and then he sees his daughter get made fun of because of yeah, who her dad is. Some little girls like like she's walking up to her group of friends and some bratty redhead is like, Do you guys smell that? Oh, it's peanuts. <laughs> Not even funny. Dirty little circus girl. Mm. Shut up, she's better than you. Um, so he Barnum gets really pissed about it and is like Clearly I touched a nerve. It fully was not you're, even fully about his daughter in the no, moment. No, you're an adult man. You need to take a deep breath. It's because he felt that now that he has this money and this home and this business, that he should come up through being name called and being this and that because that's what he experienced as a poor Taylor's son. He's deeply insecure about about his financial status. Fully. And his status in society as well. And he takes it out on everybody. Yeah. So Barnum if, woke up and said, I'm rich now and I'm going to make it everybody's problem. <laughs> which like is how he started to gain more of his money because he was leaning in and now he's mad about it because whatever. You can't have it both ways, babe. Exactly. So he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pair with someone that is high society so that way I can have more credibility. Right. I need an in. Exactly. This is where Philip Carlyle comes in. Now, again, I'm totally going to give Zac Efron a pass here because I think he deserves the chance to really like do the vocal chops thing in an original musical. That chance was taken from him, and we all know he could have done it in High School Musical the first time. Exactly. There was no reason to dub him in that movie, but they did. So I'm going to give it to him here. However, I do wish that there had been a musical theater name here. Like Jeremy Jordan sang like the demos and was a part of the early project. There were a couple other, like, Broadway names that went through the cycle. Like, all the, you know, all the big, shiny, Broadway-leading man actors. And I wish one of them would have stuck. Obviously, they went with Zac Efron because of title draw. And he does a really great job. I just wish it had been someone musical theater. When we meet Carlisle, he is 
drunk, unhappy, but he has money status. The play he just wrote is tanking. He's like, oh, did you come to see my awful play? And he's like, no, actually, I came to offer you a job. Because this looks like it sucks. (laughs) Yeah, why don't you come have some fun? Then we get the other side, which is the number between Barnum and Carlisle. The one in the bar? Yeah. I love this dance. Yeah, it's the dance is wonderful, and it truly... I don't even care about their choreo. What the bartender in the background is doing. <laughs> He's so don't tired. Don't pay attention to them He's at exhausted all. the whole time. He deserved it. He deserved a much bigger camp. This man is booking it to each end of that bar, all around the bar. And I understand that, like, this is a movie. There's multiple shots, da, 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 whatever. But seriously, like, the amount of times he probably had to run back and forth and, like, no, no. If flip you, all of these cups up and all listen, of this stuff. Oof. if you make a bartender break a sweat while serving you, then you deserve to be escorted home immediately. You should not be present in a bar any longer. Exactly. Be nice to bartenders. They get it all worked out between the two of them. I'm going to take 10% of the show, Carlisle. In return, I'm going to try and, like, hook you up with some people and... Right. Let me use my influence and pull a few strings and make a couple of appointments so that this can be taken seriously. From here, they, like, rush to the show to see it. And he's, like, finally getting to see it. And again, this is all, like, within the number. Carlisle's coming to the museum, meeting the act, seeing the show. And then he enters and he's there and we get this... Oh, my God. This breathtaking moment. This slow-mo moment of Zendaya flying through the frickin' air. We don't deserve her. No. She's so spectacular and gorgeous and gifted and cool and calm. We don't deserve her. And She's not like, even a human person. She almost, She's gotta be she a like goddess. <laughs> almost reaches Carlisle and then just like snaps back real quick. Because like, and it's, it's such a cool transition. Because you see that he... He could have been, like, wowed by the spectacle of everybody. It wasn't that at all. No, it was, like... He fell in love. It was love at first sight in the middle of the act. Yeah. Like, she's mid-flight, and they made eye contact, and just, like, boom, love. Yeah. From here, we, like, next day it, or whatever. It's not the next day. It's probably months later. (laughs) But Carlisle comes in, and he's like, Hey, I hope you're all ready. We're going to meet the queen. The queen of what? The queen of England. The queen of fucking England. And there's one of those moments again where everybody's super jazzed. And then Anne says... Is everyone invited? Is everyone invited? And it's what not What she meant said, was... Right. The, the characters that were not white. Right. What she means is, are me and my black brother invited to the queen's palace too? Yeah. This movie does a lot of, like, really coyly dancing around racism. And, like, the behavior is there. The the actions are happening, and we are, like, calling them out and addressing them as bad behavior. But someone, please, just for the love of God, just say the word racism. Just call it what it is, point at someone who does something racist, and say, you're a racist. Someone just address it, please, for the love of God. Let's not, let's not all dance tingly around the word. Racist people don't deserve to feel comfortable. No. So just say it. Well, and truly, sometimes 
people don't learn if they don't know either. Exactly. So, like, people can do things... It feels like a very sanitized, like, almost, like, children's show version of, like, we're not going to label it as anything. We're just going to show you the bad behavior and tell you that it's bad. Exactly. This isn't Dora the Explorer. No. Just call it racism. You can just call it out. Because sometimes people do things and they don't realize that they're offensive because they haven't been told. And, and sometimes that's, that That's light... a learning moment and that's great. Right. So long as they take that as a learning moment, which is the important thing. Right. But you don't get the chance when... Because truly, like, I watched this movie the first time and I was like, are they talking about racism? Right, because it's ambiguous and it shouldn't be. Like, what in the heck is going on No, here? no, like, racism shouldn't be ambiguous. Yeah, it no. should be called racism. Exactly. So... And... All of that to say, Carlisle says, listen, if anyone gets 86 off of this list, we're not going. Yeah. He just straight up says like, we'll just have to, we'll just have to tell them that if we're not invited, if, if everyone isn't invited, then no one's invited. Exactly. And truly, Carlisle, I think is the only one uh, in that room that would have made sure that that happened. And God bless. Yeah. Well. It's fine. They go off. They see the queen. And Keela settles back in this purple dress that she wears for the show. Stunning. I would literally give up an internal organ to be able to, like, touch and see this dress in person. I don't understand how the skirt is built. I need to be able to touch the top. I have to know how wide the neckline is. Like, I just want to, like, touch it and, like, (laughs) get inside of it and understand how it's shaped and built. She looks phenomenal in it. And I just, I just want to know, like, what it's made of. I just want to touch it, put my face on it. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> She's wearing her costume that she wears for the show. Everyone is in their costumes, except for Barnum. Barnum is wearing a coat and tails. He's wearing a tuxedo, yeah. Yeah. And they literally ask him, like, why do we have to be in costume? Why can't we look nice and dress nice? But you. You and Carlisle get to show up like right. like nice people dressed for a formal event. Right. Because like Carlisle makes sense only because at this point, he didn't have a role in in the show yet. Right. But the point is that they're not people. They're a side show. Exactly. Carlisle the and spectacle. Barnum get to be people. Exactly. They don't, they're not, especially for thinking about the times and like Anne, Zendaya's character. Right. Wearing essentially a leotard. Right, like lycra underwear. In a room full of people. And again, one of... And that's One of Barnum's favorite... Right, right. But one of Barnum's favorite acts was exotic women. Quote, unquote, exotic women. Right. Women who aren't white. And yeah. he would dress them up in, you know, sequins and coins and shiny, jingly things. Yeah. And that was the act. So that's what that's, they feel like they're on display, which is the uncomfortable part, but. Exactly. So then there's this moment um, where the queen like looks at Charles and is like, oh my God, you're so much shorter than, than I thought. And he's like, well, you're not exactly reaching the top shelf either, lady. <laughs> he fires back really quick and the whole room like it's gasps like, and holds Ooh! their breath. Because they need to see what the queen is going to do. Because well, she's... to be fair, this sideshow act just insulted the Queen of England. 
Well, right. They're like, oh my God, what is she going to do? What is she going to do? Are we literally going to watch beheading? What's going on? And she just laughs. Oh, and it's so uncomfortable. The whole room is like, it's oh, so uncomfortable. Oh. It's so uncomfortable. But thank good, thank goodness. Exactly. So then we also now get to meet Jenny Lind. Man, fuck Jenny Lind. The the songbird of Sweden. Ugh. So she arrives and she's talking with Barnum. And truth be told, she's trying to get away from Barnum and not wanting to talk to him and not wanting to have to deal with him. And he is very firmly inserting himself. And she's like trying to give him the brush off. Right. And then he pushes it to the point and he is like, nope, I like... I have to be your manager. I have to be your manager. And he, listen, he doesn't even hear her sing. No, he just at this point. He just meets her. He just meets her and hears that everybody loves her and he's like, I want to give people something that's real. He says a lot of really shitty backhanded things Which to like, her oh, about the rest of his my God. his show. Exactly. So and he's like, Your performance will take place in an actual theater with an orchestra. And he goes right on ahead and he makes it happen. She he says also, yes. He also, at, at some point to Jenny Lind, when he's trying to convince her to, he says the same thing he said to, to Letty. Yep. He says, they're going to, they're going to love you. Yep. And like, it's a whole moment. Letty hears him say it and it just, you can see her break right in half. Yeah. It's so disheartening. Yeah. I have a question. I have an answer. Let's see if they match. Was Lauren Allred just like not available for the movie? The person who yeah, dubbed the singing voice? Yes. Lauren Allred does the singing for Jenny Lind. And and then there's... I'm sorry, I don't know the actress's name who actually plays her on, on, in the movie. This gorgeous redheaded songbird. Rebecca Ferguson. I just need to know why Rebecca Ferguson had to play Jenny Lind, but Lauren Allred sang. Because Lauren is gorgeous. She fully is. And She's for those of you stunning. who don't know, she went on America's Got Talent after this movie blew up the way it did. It was like, hey, so nobody knows who I am, but I'm actually the voice of Never Enough. This song that's been on the radio for six weeks that everyone's geeking out about that every artist under the sun has covered. That's me. It's me. And you can kind of see, like, definitely, you can find it on YouTube. Just go look it up. Definitely worth the watch. Yeah, because she's spectacular. Because, and the thing too is like, there might be some slight adjusting and stuff that happens for the movie because, duh. Well, of course, it's a it's a studio recording. It's not a live but performance. Almost, but it's almost exactly the same though when she sings it live. I just need to know if she's like, is she a bad actress? Was she not available? Was she on tour or something? Like what, what was the disqualifying factor that made her like not an acceptable Jenny Lind. Right. No, was I she just, too tall? Like I, I what's need, going on? I need answers because I don't understand this decision. I understand in like older movies when we have like a really famous starlet who gets her voice dubbed because they're casting her for like title draw, but then you want her to sound good and have like the, the, you know, the staying power of a trained vocalist long right. long term, so you want the movie to be successful that way. So you dub her. I understand that scenario. I've I don't I, I I've already forgotten her name. Something Ferguson? Yes. I don't know who she is. I don't I didn't know who she was before this movie. She hasn't gone on to do anything super famous since this movie. At least not anything that we know. Not of. not anything in our sphere. Like I don't understand this decision. I don't either. But she's here. She is. So 
we get to the night of the performance of Jenny Lind and everybody from the circus is super jazzed. Super jazzed. Very excited. To like go hobnob and sit. To be a part like, of a night of upper upper crust theater. Right, because they're like, oh, this is Barnum's show. We are friends of Barnum's. Right. We get to go to and see the show. And Carlisle's like, hey, what are we supposed to do? Like, where are their tickets? Where are we putting them? He's like, oh, they can just stand, stand in, in the back. back. It's Tell them it's better acoustics back there anyway. It's the best seat in the house. You're a liar. And Carlisle's Phineas. like, you are the biggest load of shit, but fine. So that's what they do. It's like, you're hiding these people that... Cause that built your wealth. Exactly. Everything you have, you owe to these people. Then we have Never Enough. I and again, love this song. Shut your eyes while watching it. Uh, yeah. Well, not the whole time, though, because she's wearing that stunning, stunning dress. I love the Never Enough dress. The, the dress is truly stunning. And we get it from, you get it from the back, you get it from the front, you get sweeps across it, you get to see it in motion. It's in multiple scenes, like, throughout the movie. I love this dress so much. This is another one that I would love to just, like... Where do these costumes live? On a lot somewhere? Are they in a museum? Probably. I want to I want to find them and touch them. I do hate her hair, though. <sighs> Sorry. Jenny waves her arms around so much. <laughs> Jenny Lind, put your fucking arms down. And, like, some of that, like, fine. So, when you are classically trained, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to move your arms, at, like, at all. Not even a little. Not at all. And when I first watched this movie, I was really hoping that this was going to be an opera number. Yeah. Only because, like, we get to hear, like, different kinds of stuff throughout. And then we heard this, like, poppy number. And I've actually heard this song sung in a more operatic Me too, voice. and it's stunning. Stunning. Oh, my God. Should have just done it. Introduced younger generations to opera and have a great time. Could have been great. An opera song with, like, a, like a pop scoring. Exactly. We know that's successful. Fifth Element. Right. Just saying. Get into it. But her arms are flailing. I mean, it's a lot. It just, I, and as someone who often conducts themselves while she sings, I know, it's a bad habit. I do it. I literally got smacked in the back of the head by a, a vocal person once. And was like, oh, such a shame, such a pretty voice, but you can't stop moving. I mean, that's a shit critique. It was shit. I was also like 17 and I'm yeah, like, maybe that's not a, the thing That's to a do. shit critique. But also it, it gets to a point where like the movement she is forcing her body through would actively disrupt her voice. Right. Like you it's need like, to. She's like, yeah, oh my God. Just... You guys, it, Benny just rode a boat. Did you like that? <laughs> Did you like that? Um, it just, it's, it's too much. And it's like, too I'm, far. I'm all about some, some body movement, really feeling it. Sure, it of just, course. But I feel like they were like movement. We need movement from you. We need more movement, more movement. And like, all she could do was flap her arms around. Right. She's which, about to take flight. Is she a better actress then? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I just, I have questions. I don't know. They also have the handhold moment in this song. Yes. Where yeah. Carlisle like slips his hand into Annie's. Like, and, and they're, they're both kind of standing there next to each other in their hands. It's that cute thing that like, you, you don't know, like, right, you like, think the other person likes you and you don't know and it's like romance, yeah. but it's not. And you're like, Whoa! just palpable nerves. And then they like finally hold hands and you see Anne like settle a bit like in, in her chest and in her shoulders. 
Because, like, the tension is released because sh- they're holding hands. And then you see this shitty couple. This Two old fuddy-duddies in a box. Shitty couple. Turn around. Why are you turned around? There's a whole woman flapping her arms before you. <laughs> that should be distracting They're in enough. one of the balcony boxes and they start, like, whispering to and each other. About the fact that they're holding hands and then he, like, drops her hand. Carlisle sees them whispering and, like yanks his hand away from her. He's like, huh! And she's like, Oof. she's like, oh, fuck you. But like with her eyeballs. And again, we're like, we're doing the racist thing. The action is happening. The behavior is occurring. Someone just say the word out loud. Right. I'm tired. This point, I'm not concerned about saying the word because we are in the middle of a performance. There is one point later where I'm like, you could have fully said it. You could have Fully set it right out to yeah, someone. Yeah, just call racism behavior... What it is. Yeah. Be like, what are you looking at? There's a whole performance going on. Didn't you pay to see this? Yeah. Go away. So, and especially because of who he is as a person. Right. Carlisle has ex- the position. And it, But, like, I think that's why the people turned and saw him. Because, like, that would be, like, a spectacle kind of anyway. But he's known everywhere. Right. And especially in this theater. So... The performance wraps. Everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. Thunderous applause. Standing ovation. And we also see Barnum off in the wings once she opens her mouth and he just fucking... Awestruck. Just mouth agape. Tears in his eyes. Just... Holy jazz. Because it's the first time he's probably ever put something genuine on stage that he didn't have to trump up or make into something else. Exactly. He didn't have to fake this one. She's a genuine talent and he did it. And Charity also, his wife sees the way that he looks at her and is like, oh, that could be trouble. I think it means different things for her. I don't think it means like a a romantic anything for her. No, but the fact that he's like, oh my God, holy shit. This is great. She's like, what is... Oh, no. Right. I think... The, I see money flying right. I think out that's the, the fear. It's, I see my husband leaving. It's a worry for her that he, he does so many morally compromising things for all of these, like, fake opportunities and to, like, and create his world. this is a real, world. actual opportunity that so, he would take on the road. So how far will he go? Exactly. We find out that Charity's parents are also there. Oh, we find out at the after party. At the after party. Right. Like, yep. They're having drinks. Um, everyone's kind of like changed and settled. And, and Jenny Lind is in this terrible, terrible like chartreuse dress. Yeah. It's just barf green. Yeah. Oh, I hate that dress. It's casual. Terrible. We see Charity's parents and we find out in this conversation that they have not met their the grandchildren. And what, the eldest has got to be like... Nine. Yeah, she's like eight or nine. And you haven't met your grandchildren? And, like, we find out at some point that the house that they, like, Charity and Barnum are living in is just on the road from her parents. And it's just like, what in the ever-loving? Like, how have you not? And, like, the, the mom... Answer, the answer, of course, is because Charity's father is a narcissistic, abusive person. It's the dad. I'm still shocked that the mom, like, at some point didn't, you know, go for like go into the city to get something and and like sneak off to meet her grandchildren. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, but anyway, the power structure was different then. Ex- well, exactly. And so, and you can tell because she was like, oh my God, are these my grandkids? And she seems so excited. Right. She, she's them. thrilled. And so excited to see her daughter. It and makes me hate him so much I more. Just, I Oh, I hate know. Charity's dad. Absolutely no. And Barnum in the moment is just like, oh, and you thought that I'd never become anything. And look at me now. And he kind of like does that. He's trying to start a pissing contest. Right. He, he gets all puffed up and proud. Yeah. And then the dad's like, he says, all that fortune and still just a tailor's son. Now, now, he is a completely awful human being. Truly. But he's not wrong. That's a good burn. That is <laughs> delicious pettiness. It must be fattening. I mean, so good. Then they get into a fight. They end up leaving. It's right. a whole thing. Because again, not only is P.T. Barnum an unhappy liar... He's a petty, unhappy liar. Exactly. So he totally waltzes himself right into it. You can't even feel awful for him because he did it to himself. Like, you poked a bear. Did you expect not to get bitten? Exactly. And it's somewhere in here, too, like, the circus friends are trying to come in and join and, like, drink free champagne, and they think it's going to be a fun time. They didn't even feel snubbed that they had to stand in the back of the house. No, because they were so awestruck by the performance that they were just happy to be in the room. And then Barnum can hear them coming towards the ballroom they're in, so he goes to the door and meets Keela at the door with the entire crew behind them. And they're like, can we come in? What are we drinking? What's going on? And he's like, no, no, no. You have a show in an hour. This isn't... You have to go. And they're like, no, we can come in for a drink. And he's like, no one's going to pay to see you if I parade you around in here. Right. I mean, he's just firing off excuses. He's like, the lighting isn't right. The warm, the room's too warm. Uh, I'm, I'm wearing two left shoes. You can't come in. Right. And so they're shut out. He like fully shuts a door in Letty's face. Well, my beautiful dears and darlings, um, as we mentioned, we've recorded pert near three hours of uh, content on this guy. So uh, I think we're just going to preemptively call it and say that we're going to make this a two-parter. It's a two-banger. It's going to be a two-banger. Please actually listen to the second half of this one this time. There's a really cool thing at the end. <laughs> and I'm time... not just saying that to get you to listen. I'm saying that because, like, Drake has this whole theory about Guys, the I had, entire... the, I had an insane epiphany. About the entire freaking musical. It's wild. And then I added on to it, which just blew his mind even further. I mean, and really... it just, we really did it at Ooh. the end of this one. It really shakes the ground. Last time we did a two-parter, no one, like, no one listened to the second half of Hello, Dolly. And I did a lot of research on that gold dress. I'm really <laughs> proud of the research on that one. And I, I hope people go back and listen to Hello, Dolly, part two, Electric Boogaloo. Truly. Like, I it's just got listen, some good stuff in it. Listen, and this one was a listener request from several people. Yeah, lots of people wanted to hear and this, this was one. one so. of, what, this was one of the very top ones on the list to get done because of the amount of people that have requested it. And we want to do it right. And I got to tell you, I think that there are some things in here that you're not going to know. The thing is, we had so much to say. And we've had like long recordings before, but we always know we can pare it down. I don't want to pare it down. I feel like there's just a lot of good 
content here that I want you guys to get. So I sincerely hope that you go and listen to part two of, of this one when it comes out. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to part two of Hello Dolly because we wrap that one up really nicely. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I know it's a shorter episode, so just like squeak it in wherever. <laughs> um, we are still going to go ahead and do a fortune cookie for you. Oh, heck yeah. We can't leave you kids for a whole week without a snack em. I would never. Ugh, are we parents or are we parents? So our fortune cookie today comes from Kathy Hirsch Pasek, who is Benj Pasek's mom. Oh, okay. So the quote is, creative innovation requires knowing something. You can't just throw paint on a canvas. It's the 10,000 hour rule. You need to know something well enough to make something new. Ugh. Clearly something she instilled in her son. Holy jazz, Batman. Because again, I think Pasek and Paul are doing something brand new here, babes. Yeah, this is... Oh. I think it's it's not Hollywood and it's not Broadway. It's something else. It's something in the middle. And it's it's brilliant. It's the whole thing from every angle, right? It's not just the story they're telling. It's the story they're telling. It's the music and when they release it, it's the music that they're writing. It's where the music gets played and shared. I think they're doing something... And celeb collapse, and just, I, I get just... The Broadway ensemble underneath yeah. star vehicles from Hollywood screens. And again, it's something. It's something else. We haven't seen anything like this hit the zeitgeist the way that this did. Right. And, and, and then, we didn't see that happen again until Hamilton happened. Right. And, and we're here in the golden age, right? The, the renaissance now of movie musicals so to see this do this in this time frame i mean i don't know guys i think it's something something new and something crazy and i hope i hope that this formula can be can be examined right i hope it can be examined like this and people can take something from it and learn from it and do something bigger and better and i think i think it's going to take new voices like pasik and paul i think it's going to take new directive initiative. I think we need new directors, new creatives on that end. I think it's time for queer people, brown people, black people, people of color. I think it's time. We're done telling old stories. I think it's time to do the new thing now because we know it, it this is proof it works. We have to let new people tell new stories in new ways. And I think this is happening. It's happening. Well, cuz think about the other things that were like big lost cats. Yep. The big blockbusters. It was old people doing old things the old way. Yep. And that fails. So I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see where it all goes from here. Where can they find us? You can find us. Several places. <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter at Backstage BDs. That's Backstage B for Benny, D for Drake, S. Instagram at Backstage Biddies or email us at BackstageBiddies at gmail.com. If you rate us five stars and comment your favorite movie musical, it will be moved to the top of the list just like The Greatest Showman was. Yes, indeed. And several more that we have coming up. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled. It's going to be listener requests left and right, up and down. Side to side. Shake it all around. Where can they find you? They can find me on TikTok and Instagram at BinnyBiddy. And you can find me on Twitter at Vinny Ann with no E. Also, just a quick thing, my Ren Fair outfit is posted on my Instagram. Ooh. 
it. It was so, really good, guys. Like actually, like a, like a solid ten out of a ten. So, just saying. Go check it out. Oh. Go, go fucking oh. take a look. Where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Drake underscore Leverance. That's Drake underscore L E W E R E N Z as in zebra. Drake underscore Leverance. Hot damn kids. What a good time. We'll see you guys next Monday when we wrap up the rest of this wild and crazy story. Rest, take care, and be kind. Okay, bye. Bye. Cy Coleman is the same composer who did Sweet Charity, City of Angels, Will Watch... Uh, trying to get through it. <laughs> Don't you ever make a face like that at me again. Oh no. It's <laughs> gonna... <laughs> it's gonna be a long one, kids. I'm so sorry. Oh Jesus. Oh my god, I'm I think I'm crying. <laughs> Focus. I'm we trying. I'm we doing have it. to finish Just this. Don't. I can't look at you. It's casual. <laughs> okay. So you're talking about a musical. Yep, yep, yep.